into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm of course your host, Samson Kovach, and I welcome you to this part 11 series on the Bible. And I said uh, last time, you know, we we got done with the understanding of, um, you know, the uh, the canon of the New Testament, okay? And we started working towards the concept of translation, okay? And who can translate? What what type of translation are you thinking of? And you know, we we want to talk about that a, a little bit in in the idea of what is in somebody's head whenever they're translating. Um, I mean, I, I kind of go through this, even though I'm not translating any language to you really in English, but sometimes when people speak in high Christianese or you get into um, heavy theological circles where they start using big theological words that you might not understand, it needs to be broken down for you. And that's sort of what I'm doing here at the Theology Pit. But I also want to educate you to the point where you start understanding those big theological words and you can use them yourself. So I, I sort of want to be that that bridge in between. I'm sort of like uh, the in-between go-to person uh, between a, a technician and a, uh, I'm, I'm a technician between a an engineer and, and uh, you know, an administrative uh, person that the engineer creates the thing and tells the administrative person about it and they don't understand. So they come to the technician that then breaks it down into normal words that can uh, tell them, okay, this is basically what they're saying and how they want it to work. Um, and, and, and so whenever you get into theological circles, sometimes you can just get overwhelmed because of a, a lot of that stuff. So what I'm doing here is I'm taking these big theological concepts like uh, bibliology, which is what we're studying here, um, the study of the Bible, and I'm, I'm breaking it down. And we'll also get into hermeneutics later on, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation, and we'll break that down. And so over the past couple weeks and, and months here, you know, you've been learning all about you know the Bible, the alleged contradiction the problems. Do we have the right books? Do we have the right words? Like that sort of thing. And uh, now we're going to move on in this particular uh, edition into the inspiration of scripture. What does it mean that it is God breathed? What does it mean that it is Theonoustos? Um, How does that fit in? And is it the translation that we have? Is that Theonoustos, God breathed, the word of God? Or are some better than others? really what it comes down to in the English language is when we're studying the Bible, you know, which translation do you use? Which one's better? Um, is there a better translate? Is one translation better than the other, depending on what you want to do with it? Um, for study, I really love the Net Bible. I think it's a great study Bible, the New English Translation. Um, you can get them at uh, like Bible.org. But um, I, I also like the way that it reads. I, I really do. I think, uh, and, and rarely do you find a good study Bible that you also enjoy reading that just reads very well. Um, I've, I've been in study groups where, you know, 
you were asked to read a, a, a passage, you know, that you're studying in particular, and you know, I'd volunteer and I'd read, and people would ask me, "What translation are you using?" And they would really like that translation. It would have, you know, the the emphasis that was needed in places, and, and I mean, it's, it's it's a good translation in my view because you know, if you get the ones with uh, all the footnotes, let me see if I can read my all my. Uh, lettering and stuff is starting to smudge off. It's it's pretty much gone on it. But uh, this one has sixty thousand nine hundred and thirty-two translation notes in it. Um, but it reads very well. So it's an all around, and you can get just a reader's edition. Some people like just reader's editions too. But is it the inspired word of God? And that becomes the question because you'll run into some Christians and usually the most vocal, the ones that get the most attention are the King James only people. Um, And these are a lot of um, fundamentalist Baptist movements, um, fundamentalist charismatic, uh, I guess I guess I could just say charismatic, um, Church of God type um, Pentecostal um, that are very serious. I mean, I, I was part of a um, charismatic Pentecostal church that was a King James only church. And I remember using a new King James version and that was, oh, what are you doing? No, 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 you can't do that. I remember being in a Bible study and, and you know, reading a section out of it and the the pastor asked me, what version are you reading? And I told him, well, it's the New King James. He said, well, we just use the King James here. And I said, okay, but, you know, I, I, I find the Elizabethan English in it, you know, that... Um, that dost thou not knowest that thine, you know, so I, I find that stilted and it's, it's, it's difficult to understand. And the response I got was, well, you need to pray and God will help you to understand it. And, you know, my thought was always like, well, then why don't we read it in Greek? You know, just grab Greek. If you don't understand it, we'll just pray and then God will do it. And I don't mean to say that facetiously, but in a sense I do, because that's such a, a cop-out thing that if you don't conform to the way that we do things, then you're automatically wrong and it's because you don't believe. And I think that that is so terrible to to say to people and to um and to, and to think in that way i think it's very wrong-headed to think in that way i think that uh, sometimes people ask me that well, what version of the bible should i get and i tell them whichever one you're going to read you know whichever i don't i i on on the surface i don't care i don't care if you get the best you know greek edition of the bible that you can find new testament if you can't read Greek, what's the point? If you get the best, you know, King James version, but you have no idea what you're, uh, what's being said, you know, it's doing you no good. You know, I mean, I've known people that you know pride themselves on being able to uh, memorize and you know reiterate, you know, or I should say, eloquate an elocutionist. What do they do? You know, an elocutionist is somebody that gives like speeches of like memorized things and stuff. Um, and it, that just makes me wonder, okay, great. You can repeat all of it, but do you know what it says? That's an issue. And the same would go with, you know, just, just about anything else when it comes to, when it comes to the Bible, you know, make sure that you're getting something that you're going to read. Now, the reason that people have this attachment to the King James version of the Bible, some of them might not even know. Uh, some of it, it might be, Hey, I was, I was brought up in it. I was raised in it. It's what, um, I particularly understand or 
the doctrines that were taught to me are best explained and articulated through the King James Version of the Bible. And I find it more difficult to explain or defend them in other versions. And I, I understand that, but you know, nobody's really that honest about the King James version if they do hold to it, you know, or they just consider it to be the more, the more ancient translation, you know, because it was commissioned, you know, the 1611 version, uh, the history of it. Um, but it, that you would ask them, it's also been called, uh, King James, you may have heard it also called this, the the AV, or the Authorized Version. And the reason why they call it the Authorized Version, some people might not know where that comes from. They might think, well, it's been authorized by God, and that's why we use this one. I use the Authorized King James Version of the Bible. Okay, what do you use? The Unauthorized one? That's not what it is. It was, uh, you know, authorized and commissioned uh, by royalty. Um, I believe that the copyright of the King James Version is still held by the Queen of England, um, who allows it to be used freely. Um, you know, permission is not needed for the King James Version of the Bible at all, um, which is uh, very nice and interesting that there are other versions of the Bible which are copywritten and you do need permission, specific permission. Um, the net Bible, that version of the Bible, uh, in the beginning of it, it even has a, um, a, a sort of like a little blurb in there about the, the, the copyright thing. Uh, part of the reason why they put the Net Bible together, the New English Translation, is that if you have internet access anywhere in the world, you should have, you know, uh, a access to a good Bible, a good translation of a Bible, a good study Bible for free. And so that's what they do. And you are allowed to download, and this is this comes from the um, you know, first page, first insert within within that Bible here. It says, uh, from uh, our website at Bible.org, you may download the Net Bible and print it for others as long as you give it away and do not charge for it. In this case, free means free. It cannot, cannot be bundled with anything, sold, nor can you charge for shipping, handling, or anything. It is provided for personal study or for use in preparation of sermons, Sunday school classes, or other non-commercial study. This release is also available to organizations like the Gideons International, who may distribute uh, millions of copies of the Net Bible text without royalty. This release does not apply to media other than paper for free distribution of more than a thousand paper copies or distributions in any other form electronics you must obtain written permission and comply with our guidelines for uh, con content control and include currently valid bsp copyright and organizational acknowledgements okay so the net bible and the thousand paper copies let's be honest this um particular uh, book that I'm looking at right here has over um, 2,520 pages in it. So if you are making more than a thousand copies of that, uh, you're you're killing forest uh, for you know for example but um, that that's that's a lot of copies uh, to be had but you know what if you went over the thousand and you are giving them away that's that's just your thing that's just what you do um, they're not gonna I, I, you know I would be surprised if they you know gave you a cease and desist order at all with it but um, they wanted to make sure that it's it's not changed it's not uh, altered in any way 
where with the King James version, it, it can be, which is why you have the new King James version. And, uh, um, I think with the TNIV as opposed to the NIV, there was like uh, so much of it had to be changed for it to be considered a different translation or something. I don't know. Um, but you have a lot of, um, Bible translations that are out there where they change them dramatically and they're really bad. Um, what the, um, I'm trying to remember the one that Jehovah Witnesses use. Um, they have butchered it completely and changed stuff uh, to make it say what they want it to say. And if you challenge them on it, I guarantee they will never come back to your house again. You listen to these theology pits and you challenge them on, let me see your translation. Why is this the word of God? What authority do you have? What scholars really translated this? Why does it, why is it so much different than the majority of all Bibles out there? You know, why is yours the only one that's the correct one? And I guarantee if you want to, if you want to stop Jehovah witnesses from coming to your house, challenge their version of the Bible, their, um, in their translation of the Bible, I should say, uh, it, it will keep them away uh, almost guaranteed. Um, so there's a free tip from the theology pit for you, uh, when, when dealing with, um, dealing with uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Mormons is a little bit different story, but you know, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, yeah. Now, I talk to them with the Bible as like their um, uh, like their, their Bible is one that I would agree with, but they can see whenever I'm moving. And, and you know, if, if you're doing witnessing with them, you got to be careful with it because they'll have a, um, uh, what do they call it? A spirit of contention that they'll say that you have, and you're just, you're just contending things and that, you know, that's, that's an evil spirit or something like that. And it's in you, but anyways, um, so back to the King James version with it being the authorized version. Um, it's from what's something that's called the, uh, translated from the Texas Receptus. And that just is Latin for the received text received from where, uh, well, some would say received from God. Okay. It was preserved. The old joke goes that, you know, if the King James version was of the Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. You know, that, that sort of thing. Or um, that Jesus and the apostles, uh, they only spoke, uh, they spoke Greek, but they could only write in, or they, they, they spoke in Old English, but they could only write in Greek. And so it wasn't until 1600 years later that we actually got a copy of the real word of God. And that would be the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. But this Texas Receptus and where it came from and what it is, um, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, Part of it is that the majority of the manuscripts that it was based off of were from the Byzantine Empire. And we went over that in uh, in this series already, where the Byzantine Empire was. Um, think of it like north of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, there was somebody that had a lot of money and made a lot of copies of those. And they you know, did have a lot of uh, uh, variants in them. They weren't as well-preserved as the, um, the, the Alexandrian manuscripts that were pushed up into um, uh, the northern regions uh, until the, um, the Islamic invasions that like swept through uh, northern Africa and um, you know, Eastern Europe and, and on that really you know set those up that you know showed that the Alexandrian manuscripts, the, the people in Alexandria just had a much better uh, copying practice. Um, than uh, the um, Byzantine. Uh, but the Byzantine, there's more of them, where the Alexandrian, there's less of them, but they're better quality. 
So, you know, the 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 Texas Receptus um, had uh, only so many manuscripts. I, I want to say it was like around nine, and the majority of them were from like the ninth century. I think there was one from the thirteenth century, and there was parts of uh, the Book of Revelation that wasn't even there. They actually had to um, take the Latin Vulgate, which was the official Bible. We talked about this before. It was the official Bible of the of the world, pretty much, for a thousand years. And they had to then, I guess, reverse engineer it into Greek and then translate it into the English equivalent. So, um, you know, w- within those uh, parts, you can... Um, th- there would be a lot of uh, problems, a lot of issues with them, and why it, it wouldn't agree. But they would bring apart this thing called doctrinal preservation because of this. And the argument goes like this, and it's it it's really a when you when you think about it, ultimately it becomes a palatable argument. Um, not not palatable that you should uh, agree with it, so to speak, but palatable that uh, it's logical that if the Bible is the word of God, and if it is good for rebuking proving for um, behavior, for correction, uh, and it is the word of God, and it would be perfect, then God would preserve it perfectly. And there are some that would say the Texas Receptus is that preservation. And then by it being translated into English in the King James Version, that that is God preserving his word and being faithful to keeping his word preserved exactly how it should be. Okay. Even though there are, you know, a lot of problems with the new came with the King James Version and a lot of cults and a lot of atheists that like to say that the Bible is wrong or full of errors or contradictions or whatever, you never see them quoting from anything but the King James Version of the Bible because honestly, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, finding problems with the the translation, um, the King James Version. And so this is what's always uh, sort of the go to kid. Or, like, if they do use other translations, it's because they've totally misunderstood something and they're just doing that to show, look, they all say roughly the same thing, even though they're different. And, you know, it's all problematic. And really, they don't know what they're talking about. That's mostly on the atheist side, though. That You don't find a lot of that with, you know, within the, the cult uh, section. I guess technically cults are atheists, too. But that's a, that's a whole other theology pit. That's a whole other discussion there between hard atheism and soft atheism and religious atheism. But, um... You know, they they would say that okay, so we we need one standard. Okay, so we have to have one standard that we all agree on that it's the word of God and that we align ourselves with, which is a rational argument. Let's be honest. And they would say that the, the King James Version is it because let's say that you know you have a translation that says something completely different than what I say, but what I'm saying is what's lining up with our doctrine and what's lining up with our morality and you know our behavior and everything. So therefore, you know, uh, yours is automatically wrong. I mean, it can get to the point where um, that King James only people, some King James only people, uh, would say that the um, the King James version of the Bible is the uh, not necessarily the autographs, but it is the the doctrine of preservation is so strong on it that even the Alexandrian manuscripts are wrong 
if they differ from the King James version of the Bible or more specifically the Texas Receptus. That's how strong they are on it. I mean, they they even put it into the place where uh, they would say that, um, let me find his name real quick, uh, Jasper James Ray, okay, uh, he held to this view and and he he wrote a book um called uh, God wrote the only one bible and he said in it that no modern version may be properly called the bible okay and he says that um salvation and spiritual growth can only come through versions based on the Texas Receptus okay now again if you went through um uh, the theology pit uh, salvation series you that, that would immediately jump out at you as a problem um and if you've hung around the theology pit long enough to know that there were Christians before there was the New Testament, that is a big problem too. You know, salvation and spiritual growth can only come through versions based on the Texas Receptus. There's a whole bunch of problems there. But then he goes on further to say, and that Satan is the prime mover behind all versions based on the more ancient manuscripts. Yeah, let that sink in. That manuscripts that are older than the ninth century, okay, that were from the Alexandrian era, that were closer to the originals, okay, that were better uh, preserved in a in a sense when it comes to like variants and stuff. That the ones that get closer to the actual wording of the apostles, that Satan is the prime mover behind versions based off of that, i.e. the net Bible. So if he's correct, um, then those who use modern translations or even a Greek New Testament based on the ancient manuscripts are at best dupes of the devil and at worst in danger of forfeiting their immortal souls. So I'm not just making it up when I say that King James only people really do feel that strongly about the King James version of the Bible and that nothing else can be inspired based on and why they are so like venomous against it, why they, um, you know, will fight and die. It's a hill that they will fight and die on it. I'm dropping stuff here. It really is. Uh, it is, um, something that they will break fellowship with. They will, um, question your salvation and and it's 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 part of their doctrine it's so it's so odd um but you know they don't have a and i and i you know went through this and stated that they don't have a understanding of the doctrine of justification at all um that it's that that is a a very foreign uh concept to them as a whole but um but yeah but you could see you know the, the things here so this idea of the Bible being the perfect, infallible word of God. And when I say infallible, I'm saying it's unable to fail in what it talks about. Some people hear infallible and say, uh, that it's inerrant. And some people say inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means that it does not error on anything that it talks about. Okay. Unable to fail does not error, which means that if you could show me one error 
in any part of the 66 books the Protestants hold or the 72 books that Roman Catholics hold, if you could show me any problem anywhere in any of it, it immediately discredits the entire Bible. Immediately. Um, people, especially uh, anti-theists and, uh, and atheists, glob on to this 17th century concept because this is what, you know, the people that they hate, the ones who just are beating them over the head saying you're going to hell if you don't, you know, uh, and, and, and really just do apologetics probably in the worst way possible and witnessing in the worst way possible. They're the ones that say the Bible is the perfect word of God. And the assumption is that God is perfect. Therefore, this Bible is perfect and everything in between these pages is perfect. It was even brought up in, what was it, 2012 in a debate question uh, when Mitt Romney was running um, for the uh, president of the United States against Barack Obama. But in the primaries, I remember this question being brought up and thought, where where does this have any relevance to it? But... um, there, uh, oh, who is who? Who was it asked to? Um, the only person on there that had a, uh, a master's degree from a, a seminary, who um, had a theological degree. It'll, yeah, it'll, it'll come to me um, later. But um, they, they asked him. They, they had it was a video question, and the person held up a King James Bible in the video and said, "Do you believe that every word in this book, from cover to cover, is true?" And this was somebody that was a fundamentalist and was really you know, stressing that point and, and, and saying that. And I'm sitting there thinking, that is the most asinine question out there. Uh, because nobody does. That person didn't even do it. That person didn't even believe that. And I can prove it with the table of contents because there is no table of contents in any book of the Bible. So what you're telling me is that the table of contents has to be inspired. Any notes that are in it have to be inspired. The copyright material of it, if it's in there, has to be inspired. The printing has to be inspired. Everything that would not be considered the word of God that is in that from cover to cover that he says... Uh, you have to then admit that it is, and if you're not, you're wrong. That's the impression that's given, okay? And really, by showing that, you know, the possibly there was a printing error on the printing date of that book, you know, in that section would then disqualify the entire book from being the Word of God is equal to saying that finding a discrepancy in the first chapter of Genesis with modern scientific understanding does the same thing. Let me say that again. I might have went by that kind of fast. People like to say um, that I can disprove the Bible in under two minutes. And then they read through the beginning of the first chapter of Genesis and say, and they and they try and read it like a science book, like it's some science textbook. Like that's the the whole point of the first, you know, chapter of Genesis. Okay, but they read it like that, and then say this is wrong because science has told us that that's not what you know this is, even though that's not what the first chapter of Genesis is claiming to do. And they say, therefore, the Bible is full of it's wrong. You don't have to believe it. I just destroyed the entire Bible. If they 
came up to you and, and some, some atheists might be listening to this. Some anti-theists might be listening to this and they say, well, yeah, because 17th century, that's what, you know, it says that's, that's the doctrine of preservation. That's it. Like, that's perfect. Okay. But it's because somebody told them that, you know, the doctrine of preservation, maybe not in those terms, but loosely like that, 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 that's what it is. That's what this was. The way I hear that is somebody saying, huh, you know what? I contacted the printers and it turns out they made a printing mistake and they actually printed it the month after what they put in there. It should have been said that it was printed in March and it wasn't. It was actually printed in like February and stuff. And I'm sitting there going, I'm like, wait, what? How does that prove anything? How does that prove that, you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? I don't get that. That's not the hinge point of Christianity. Like, that's how ridiculous it sounds to me when somebody does that the same way if somebody went through you know some of the uh, you know the, the the footnotes or the table of contents and it had like the wrong page number next to it or you know there's a mistake in the page number or something like that I mean there's actually a version of the King James version that was called the adulterer's Bible because when it was first printed it said thou shall commit adultery it left the word not out of it and so it's like oh there's the adulterer's Bible because it's saying that you know you should you should do those sort of things okay. But this becomes the problem then that, you know, people come at it and, and just say that. And it's no, it's it's 66 books or you know, 72 books if, if you're Roman Catholic and you have to deal with each one of those individually. OK, and you have to understand it individually and understand it as a whole. So, you know, when we're talking about this doctrine of preservation and we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, is this what we mean or is there other ways to understand inspiration of Scripture? Now, obviously, you can tell by my tone, I think that there are other ways. I mean, I think that if, if I was to sit here and say, no, the net version of the Bible, that is the true Word of God and everything else is rubbish, well, then, you know, I would be in the same camp as them. But I'm not going to say, hey, your eternal soul rests on whether or not you accept the King James Version of the Bible any more than, hey, your eternal soul, uh, it rests on your articulation of the doctrine of justification. And there are churches that hold to that. I went through that in the the salvation series, um, but you know, I, I just I just find it as equally problematic. So you know, what does it mean that the Bible's inspired? Well, let's take a look at that. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so when we talk about inspiration and we talk about, you know, what does it mean that the Bible's inspired? How How is it inspired? What do you mean by that? I mean, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about like amanuenses who were, um, you know, like fancy secretaries. And, you know, that, that brings in a lot of issues because, you know, you have to kind of think, okay... Let's let's look at it like this. You have the mind of God, okay, right? And God wants to to translate. He wants to transmit something to mankind, okay? So, how does he do it? Is it in the mind of the author? Like God puts his thoughts into the mind of the author? Or is it like 
mechanical dictation. Like they go into a trance and they just start writing and whatever comes out that that's then the mind of God. That's, that's the true word of God. Or is it when the preacher preaches from a pulpit or, you know, the, um, the, the parish priest gives a homily that, that it's in the message proclaimed that that is the inspiration that is the word of God or is it when the message is received by the person that it doesn't do any good unless the person receives it and then that reception of it that is the word of God that they are grabbing a hold of so what do we mean when we say you know that, that it's inspired? Like who 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 is it inspired? Do do we actually have it? One of the problems that I have as a musician is that if I'm writing a new song, the 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 music that I hear in my head, what I want it to say, it's immediately compromised by the medium that I have to use. Okay, my instrument of of choice is called the Chapman stick, and you hear it in. Um, the uh, you know the the opening and closing of the theology pit here that's that's me playing, and uh, in the um, you know little middle part there um, the the break at the the thirty minute mark, um, but I'm compromised by it by its sound by its tone by what it's doing it's not exactly what I hear in my head but it's close enough, and I sometimes it'll be a mistake that I enjoy or something like that, but you know if. Let's just say that God has inspired me to have a, a a a song that I want to get out for the people, and I I start I, I hear it in my head. Is what I hear in my head is that the inspiration? Okay, is it when I translate it over, even though it's not exactly what I heard in my head, God would know that, and He would know the limitations of the instrument that I'm using and my technical ability, and so He makes it so that. The limitations of the instrument and my technical ability are actually what he wanted, what he intends, what he intends, okay? Or whenever I go and I perform it, depending on the amplification system that I use, how it's going out, how much reverb, how much it's being processed, if it's being uh, compressed at all, and how people are, you know, how, how, how it's being sent out, that God understands that, prepared for that, and actually that's where his message is. That's where the inspiration is. Or when the person hears it, when the person receives it, you know, that that is, you know, what is, that is what God intended. So that's where the inspiration takes place in the, in the mind of the person, in in the heart, in their, in their ears. I've told people that, you know, whenever I play music, I am vibrating your eardrum. Okay. And, depending on how I play, I can give a very powerful emotional response. You can feel happy. You can feel sad. You can feel melancholy. You can feel relaxed. Um, depending on how I play, I can, I can alter your mood in a way. I can, I can change you. I can touch you emotionally and physically. Okay. I'm physically touching you through sound waves, through uh, my, my instruments, an electric instrument. It uses pickups. So, the vibration of the strings is breaking the electromagnetic plane, okay? And it's causing a fluctuation. That fluctuation is turning into electrical pulses. Those electrical pulses are then going through my amp or through any system. I've done this uh, online also, you know, uh, performed over, over the internet and people have headphones on and it's coming out into their headphone, which is moving, you know, a small... 
um, uh, speaker. Okay, it's moving the voice coil on the speaker, causing it to move back and forth, which is moving air. So I'm moving the air, and I could be on the other side of the world, and I'm moving the air. I've, I've talked and performed for people in Australia. So on the other side of the world, I've moved air, and I've moved their eardrum, and I've gotten them to express a feeling through that. I've touched them emotionally through what's being done, just all based on you know what what's going on here. So when you think about inspiration in that sense, where does it lie? And that that becomes the big question. And and in what degree also. So when you think of inspiration and you think of, you know, all those different levels that I just uh, I just talked about, um the dictionary defines inspiration as stimulation of the mind or emotions on to a high level of feeling or activity. Or an agency such as a person or work of art which moves the intellect or emotions or prompts action or invention. Something such as a sudden creative act which is inspired. Okay, the quality of inspiring or exalting. Um, the painting was full of inspiration. You know, you recognize that divine guidance or influence exerted directly on the mind and soul of humankind. Or the act of drawing in, especially the inhalation into the lungs. Okay, so there's inspiration. All right, so when we say the inspiration of Scripture, Theonoustos, God breathed, we should really, it would almost be like the expiration of Scripture. But in English, that just sounds weird because what? It's expiring? No. No, it's not what we mean. That God breathed the breath that's going out, you know, breathing in the breath of life, like, you know, breathing out the breath of life, those, those sort of things and breathe life into man. So it's God is expiring and we are inspiring. We are taking it in. It's this inspiration. So, um, the way that Christians understand inspiration when it comes to the Bible is more or less defined by the act whereby God guided the writers of scripture, giving them his words while fully utilizing the human element within man to produce the scriptures. Okay. Using their language, their experience, their education level, um, you know, their uh, just bringing things to their mind, you know, and they will then, and then express it. Um, if you hold to every single word is, the inspired word of God and it's a mechanical dictation, then you have to remove the authorial intent. You have to move the author's personality. You have to remove um, the the circumstances that he was in. You have to, rem- and you have to wonder why is there so much irrelevant detail in it? You know, for example, um, when, when Paul says to Timothy, bring me my cloak, I'm cold. Well, is, is that something that's meant for all Christians? I mean, is that something I have to do in my life, a pilgrimage to Rome to try and find Paul and bring him a cloak? Uh, because it's in it's in the Bible. It's it's the Word of God. It's inspired. It's a command. Should I do it? This is you know a, a big question. Revelation is the act by uh, whereby God reveals the truth to mankind through both special revelation, scripture and prophets, and natural revelation, nature and conscience. We talked about that. Illumination, that's the act whereby God enlightens people to understand his relevation and its relevance to their lives. We touched around, I didn't use that word, but we touched around it when it um, came to uh, soteriology, uh, to salvation, the salvation series, with on just justification as a whole. But um, 
that theonoustos, that God breathed. Okay, we get that from 2 Timothy 3, 16, uh, 16 and 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, it comes from theonoustos, made up of two words, theos, God, and noustos for breath, uh, spirit. Um, pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, so noustos is spirit. Um, pneumonia. We get that for um, for breath, wind, um, you know, air, uh, that, that type thing. Second um, Peter uh, chapter one verse twenty and twenty one says that. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All right, and that's a. A, a, a big one to understand because some people look at that and say, um, well, you know, you want to say something about, um, you know, my behavior or the way I understand a doctrine or something like that. Well, you know what? That's just your interpretation. And it says here that, you know, scripture is, um, you know, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So if we all believe this and you don't, you're wrong. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what that's saying. Okay. What you're you're looking at is a um, an argumentative fallacy that's um, an argumentum ad populum that because the the popular belief is this that that then makes it right or true which is not what this is saying at all it's saying that um, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation okay so it's the prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation um, because no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. So the correct interpretation refused to the interpretation of the revelation to the author so that he might write the scriptures correctly. The wrong interpretation of that is that it refers to the interpretation of the revelation to the readers so that the readers might read the scriptures correctly. Okay. So when somebody says, all I need is the Bible and that's it, nothing else. And I can figure it out because I have my King James Version of the Bible. And it tells me that, you know, Scripture is um, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. And, you know, that I read this and it's the Word of God. So therefore, I understand it because God wrote it so that I could understand it because, you know, it's written to me and all this stuff. I mean... There is there's somebody that um, you know, years ago I, I dealt with on on YouTube and I don't know if he's still there anymore. He he might be. There's a, a YouTube period, um, you know, ten years ago or so, where you know big online battles um, uh, on on YouTube with uh, uh, Christianity and the Bible and things like that. And there's this one gentleman in particular who was not a Christian, very much anti-Christian, and he said the reason why, but he, he considered himself a you know a, a, a a God follower or, you know, a Christ follower, whatever, you know, but Jesus wasn't a, uh, was, was just a man. And, um, you know, he's very much a Unitarian in that sense. Um, he was like nailing jelly to the wall, but he gave his testimony one time and basically said that he and his uncle were going to sit down and they were going to read the Bible and they were going to learn about God and that's it. So they basically sat down uneducated in a room with the King James version of the Bible and just started reading it. And however they interpreted it, 
And however they understood it, they said, yes, this is what the truth is. And then anybody that had a different opinion throughout all history was wrong because they didn't line up with what, what they thought because they said, you know, that it's the word of God. Therefore, everybody can understand the word of God. And you know, God will open up your mind to understand it. I understand it. So basically it went like this, his, um, uh, you know, order salutis, I, I guess you'd say, uh, well, that's the order of salvation, but his, um, um, oh, what would you, what would you call it? Um, how we come to know what truth is, his epistemology uh, would basically be on 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 this level. It would be, um, you know, first his understanding, and then his understanding of what scripture said, and his application of what scripture said, and then anything that diverted from that was wrong because if it was right, he would agree with it. So basically, he's the arbiter of his own truth, and he would look at that stuff and say that, yeah. Stuff like this, because it's the Bible, because it's the Word of God, it's you know authorized version, or whatever, and that this means that anybody who just reads it can just understand it. You don't need any training whatsoever. And a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel that you know they can read the Bible and they can understand it perfectly without any training. And I'm like, well, look, people understand math, but not everyone can do calculus. People understand numbers, but not everyone can do trigonometry. You actually have to study. You actually have to learn. You know, I mean, you you are there any cases in the New Testament of people reading things and not understanding what they read? Well, what about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? You know, Ethiopian eunuch is is you know riding through reading Isaiah out loud, and Philip says, "Hey, what do you you know what are you reading there? What do you think?" And he says, "How am I to know without someone to explain it to me?" And he explains it to him, and then you know he's he's baptized uh, right there on the spot. He's like, "Why don't you baptize me here now? Let's let's get this done now." Um, so, you know, without you know the the understanding without reading the bible christianly or the new testament christianly i'd say the whole bible christianly but without reading it christianly you're not going to understand it because it was written down for christians to understand and this is what is taught not only through the church but also through the scriptures that it was written down for our understanding and that you know People would appeal to those in authority, like the apostles, for the understanding of Scripture. Um, you know, if if you want to understand what John wrote, ask John. If you couldn't ask John, if you can't ask John, who do you write? Who do you, who do you who do you ask? Rather, you would ask maybe Irenaeus or not? Well, yeah, I guess Irenaeus, um, but more closer. You know, you would ask um, Saint Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp, okay, because they were disciples of John. Um, and then, uh, you know, Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. Ask Irenaeus if he's not there. And it can, you can see how this can just go down the line, you know, of, of, of who to ask. So this whole idea of, you know, this inspiration and illumination and, and revelation all coming together, it's that the revelation is the scripture. It's what God has revealed, okay? Special revelation. General revelation is all of nature. Science gives us uh, the understanding of general revelation. The Bible and uh, prophets and, you know, the church, depending on how you view this, is a, uh, you know, understanding of uh, special revelation. Inspiration is on the individual. Illumination is on everyone, 
Okay, on on the church as a whole, on the group, on the people, you know, understanding it. So, um, you know, there is the understanding that um, you know, inspiration is natural. Okay, that belief, and it's defined that um, belief that certain people were extremely gifted through their natural God-given abilities to write scripture, and that is that it's one hundred percent man. That the people that wrote the Bible were just really, really gifted in the way that they wrote, and that's. That tends not to be the case. You have people from all different backgrounds, from kings to shepherds to fishermen, um, that you know used all sorts of different languages. I mean, Hebrew, the book, the book of Hebrews, is such a wonderful high Greek. It's the best you know Koine Greek that we have on record. That person was very well educated, and then you get some much more lowly you know stuff. You know, Second John and and everything. Where yeah, it seems like something that a fisherman would write. You know, uh, but then you have Emanuenses that may um, be a little more uh, literate and able to word things better. So while they're being dictated to by the apostles, maybe they changed something and and smoothed out the language and worded it better. And then the apostle read it over and said, oh yeah, that's a great way of of putting that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, keep that there. Um, Book of Romans was um, written by uh, somebody for Paul. We know that because it's stated in there. Um, Go ahead and look it up. I think I brought that up in other podcasts. Um, The illumination aspect of interpretation is the belief that the Holy Spirit moved within certain individuals to write above their natural capacity, meaning that the Bible is is 90% man and 10% God. Um, a partial is that the belief that um, some scripture is inspired, namely that which is profitable for doctrine, matters of faith and practice, but not all is inspired. Matters of history and science are not included because they are irrelevant to God's purpose. And then this makes it a 50-50. And it pretty much makes it a guessing game. Well, what did God intend to be you know, scripture and what did he not intend to be scripture? Okay, and then there's the degree aspect that um, that belief that all scripture is inspired, but some passages are more inspired than others. Like the Days of Creation narrative, for example, was written in accommodating language, a sort of baby talk, but was nonetheless inspired. And that's like the ninety percent God, ten percent man. Okay, mechanical dictation that we talked about earlier was that God simply used the hand of man to passively write his own words, like a, a trance type thing. Or verbal plenary inspiration. And verbal plenary inspiration is that all scripture is inspired by God who utilized the human element within man to accomplish this without error. Okay, so it's sort of meeting the two in between. It's the like 100% man, 100% God that God is using, as we talked about earlier, the... um, uh, experiences of the authors, the their level of intelligence, the uh, groups that they were writing to, uh, you know, all of that. God was able to to use. Think of like a master chess player, almost. You know, that God knew the best way to make the right moves in order to. Um, fulfill what he uh, wanted to have fulfilled, what he wanted to do. Um, So, you know, this brings us back to the, um, you know, where does the inspiration lie? Is it, you know, mind of God, author, you know, mind of the author, the written words, the message proclaimed, message received, that sort of thing. Um, And, and, uh, you know, there is biblical docetism, 
um, that is the evangelical heresy. And biblical docetism is defined as a method of approaching Scripture that completely neglects the human element in Scripture, emphasizing only the divine element. This approach is often influenced by a mechanical dictation theory of inspiration, but is not necessarily limited to it. And this, I would say, is the majority of... um, Protestant churches, but um, uh, you know, not not necessarily all of them. But I think that most people would fall into this. They don't read things saying, "Boy, that sounds a lot like something that Paul would say," or "That sounds a lot like something that Luke would say," or "That sounds a lot like something that you know John would say or Mark would say," or you know, uh, and, and those aspects of it. To them, the Bible is just the Bible. It's all written the same. It doesn't matter um, the way that they would interpret Scripture. Doing this is they would like um, say, okay, well, I want I want a word from God today, and I'm just going to randomly open up the Bible and I'm going to point my finger, and whatever I see, that's what God is saying to me that day. Um, they also think that every single scripture applies to them, and if you've ever heard the the, the scripture that's quoted, that you know. Um, uh, the people who are called by my name, if they hear my voice and humble themselves before me, I will heal their land. And, you know, and all that stuff. They say, oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it comes Second Chronicles. But they would say, yeah, that is, that's for me. That's applied directly to me. That is for my life. And it's like, no, that was written to those people at that time. Um, they believe that the, 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 the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are inspired as well. That's the whole thing, this beginning to end thing. None of the none of those were in there before. Okay. The canon order is inspired. Don't do a Mark you Luke Matthew John or a Matthew John Luke Mark. You know, and level because some, I mean, some were ordered that way, you know, of, of the gospels. Um, they would say that no, it has to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's inspired. It has to be that way. Um they would neglect the personality of the writer, you know, if, if Paul got a little bit snarky, you know, as, as he does in, in Galatians, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, chapter five, uh, where, you know, he, he says some pretty choice things in there. Um, uh, neglecting the rules of interpretation demanded by the type of literature represented. For example, um, poetic, if it's poetic, the moon turned to blood, apocalyptic or something like that. Well, they wouldn't take that in a poetic way. They would take it in a wooden literal way and it would become, you know, a- an issue. Um, believing that if it's the Bible, it must be true. Okay. That's, that's it that, you know, and, and if it's talking about science, well, then that's it. And most of the time it's not, but they would say that whatever comes up, that's it. Um, overly literalizing scripture, you know, um, uh, that, uh, you know, that the book of revelation is not giving apocalyptic imagery, but it is actually giving a, uh, you know, a, a detailed literal account of what is going to happen. IE left behind uh, series. Uh, not taking into account the progress, the progress of revelation. Okay. That, you know, Paul in his earlier writings, you know, and in his later writings sounds a little bit different because he's, you know, coming more and more to terms that Jesus is in fact Yahweh. Like it's, that's, that's a big deal. And it's a big revelation for him to, to come to, you know, um, so if we say the inspiration is the act whereby God guided the writers of scripture, giving them his words while fully utilizing the human element within man to produce the scriptures. I think that's the best way to say that. And I'll say, let me say that again slowly here. Inspiration, the act by whereby God guided the writers of scripture, 
giving them his words while fully utilizing the human element within man to produce the scriptures. And that makes it 100% human and 100% God, or fully human and fully God, much like how Christ, fully human, fully God. And he's also, Christ is also called the word of God. Spoken word, yes, but this is, you know, graphia, written word. You know, he was logos, spoken word. Um, Inspiration is both verbal, it extends to the very words of scripture, not just the teachings. And it's plenary, which means it extends to everything in the Bible, not just parts that speak on matters of faith and practice. Okay. Now, before we kind of get any any deeper into um, this stuff that I, you know, I, I want to go into with with you know inspiration and how do we know that the Bible is inspired and proving inspiration and that sort of thing, um, we kind of have to look back at the um, the way that we understand uh, the. Um, Oh, how should I put it? The the relationship between scripture and tradition. I think that that uh, this would be a real good point for um, for doing that. Um, and so I think I think in the next theology pit, I'm going to go over the five primary views of how people understand the role of tradition and the role of scripture, and in the role that they're the way that they interpret. Uh, the Bible. I'm going to go over the um, sola scriptura, solo scriptura, regular fide, prima scriptura, and sola ecclesia. I'm going to go through those um, you know, very slowly, and we're going to talk about you know where in uh, churches and in church history, maybe in your own life, where you you use it. Because anybody that picks up the Bible is going to be reading it in in certain certain ways, primarily, and then. You know, I, I, I want to move into, um, you know, I guess, I guess we could then move, it will continue on after we talk about that into the uh, concept of proving inspiration. And then for proving inspiration, I think from there, uh, I'll then want to um, transition into um, the... Uh, well, maybe, you know, I won't transition into the hermeneutics. I was going to go in there and how uh, to interpret the Bible. Um, because I was going to go into how, yeah, the Jews interpreted the Bible, how the early church interpreted the Bible, how the, um, the, the, the reformers interpret the Bible, how Roman Catholics interpret the Bible, like the history of interpretation pretty much. But let's hold off on that. I may go into inerrancy after that because inerrancy is, you know, different than what we've been, uh, talking about with inspiration. So yeah, so we'll do this. So the next one's coming up. I'm already laying it out here. Like, you know, hopefully I can uh, achieve this. We'll go over the fr- the five primary views of how people see the relationship between tradition and scripture in order to interpret the Bible. And then we will look at the inspiration, uh, at proving the inspiration, how we know that the Bible is inspired and, um, you know, in the different aspects of that, that might take one or one or two, definitely one, but maybe two. Then from there, we'll move on to inerrancy. And what do we mean by, you know, the Bible's inerrant. And from that, you know, we'll just continue on to the history of interpretation. I think it'll be fun. I mean, I, I really do, but we'll, you know, we'll spend a lot of time 
on this, and um, uh, that's that's kind of the game plan that I have right now. I'm not saying that that's actually what's going to happen, but you know that's what's in my mind. So hey, thank you very much for listening to the Theology Pit. Please share these podcasts with your friends. Um, share them on Facebook. If you go to the Theology Pit on Facebook, you can um, just share the the link to each of these podcasts that are going up. Please, if you haven't subscribed um, uh, to iTunes or whatever uh, RSS feed that you get it from, please do subscribe. Uh, you can send me an email at samson at samsonstick.com. Go to samsonstick.com and uh, leave a message. Tell me what you like or don't like, of course. Um, there's uh, other ways to get in touch with me, but I can't think of what they are. Anyways, I hope you're enjoying these. Um, and please uh, tell your friends, blessings. Now, it's time to close down the pit. 